Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latsur. A quick note from our previous episode, we talked with FNF president and founder Eddie Muller about the Noir City Film Festival posters from over the years, so I wanted to mention that you can see all of those posters, going back to the first one from 2003, on the FNF's website. All of the posters are available for purchase under the Shop tab at the top of filmnoirfoundation.org, and there's also a link to purchase back issues of the Noir City e-magazine, as well as the souvenir program from this year's Noir City 15 Festival in San Francisco. The souvenir program has dedicated spreads with pictures and background information for all 24 films screened at the festival. And as with any donations to the Film Noir Foundation, all proceeds from purchases go toward the FNF's film preservation and restoration efforts. And now, let's talk to this month's guest. Our guest this month is Alan K. Rohde. He is a charter director and treasurer of the Film Noir Foundation, and he has hosted classic cinema events for a variety of organizations, including the American Cinematheque, the Los Angeles Conservancy, the Alex Film Society, and the UCLA Film and Television Archive. He's the producer and host of the annual Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs, and he's also the author of two cinema biographies, Charles McGraw, Film Noir Tough Guy, and the upcoming Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film. Alan, welcome to Noir Talk. Hey, Haggai, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you for the, the introduction. And I love getting cued by the great Victor Young's theme from The Accused that we recently uh, screened at Noir City Hollywood the other week. So uh, it's great to be here. Great. Thank, thanks so much for joining us. So uh, before we get to Noir City Hollywood, I just wanted to give a bit of breaking news, at least breaking in the monthly podcast world that happened two days ago. So Eddie Muller is now on Twitter, which is a bit of a surprise because he was on with us last month and he had an extended sort of get off my lawn rant about people watching, uh, uh, tweeting while they're watching Noir Alley on TCM. But I guess maybe the TCM people convinced him to come on at the, the festival this weekend. Well, I, I, think, I think this is the, uh, the, the price of stardom. Now that Eddie has his own show on TCM Noir Alley, which I think is fantastic, but uh, you know, from selling wine to going on Twitter, uh, uh, nothing nothing comes for only the birds sing for free. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, um, but certainly it's good to see Eddie on Twitter and and fan his fans and fans of the Film Noir Foundation now can e- have another platform to interact about. Uh, classic film noir so i think that's terrific yes and he is uh so his twitter id is noir underscore czar so spelled czar noir underscore czar and the two of us of course are on twitter as well you're at alan cinephile and uh i'm on twitter at h elitzur which is h-e-l-i-t-z-u-r right right Uh, i i am on twitter and i am on facebook and uh we are social media out so we're we're all there along with the film noir foundation right and um when when i saw eddie join twitter i had to immediately tweet him the clip from todd browning's freaks where they they sing google gobble one of us 
So, mm-hmm. so now he is one of mm-hmm. us and joining the rest of us freaks who are all on Twitter. Okay. So let's get to a recap of Noir City Hollywood, which took place at the Egyptian Theater over the last couple of weeks. And as we discussed with Eddie last month, the theme of this festival was film noir from A to B, with double features of A movies paired with B movies, that a number of them that had not been shown in theaters for many, many years. So, Alan, how did everything unfold in the heart of Hollywood? Oh, it was... This year's Mar City Hollywood, unbelievably, is the 19th year. So it's been 19 years since 1999 when I walked into what was then called the uh, first annual festival of film noir uh, by the American Cinematheque at the Egyptian Theater, uh, programmed and hosted by Dennis Bartok, who invited Eddie, uh, whose, whose book Dark City had come out. And I was there, and from that, uh, I've been the co-programmer and co-host, uh, I think, for the last 11 years. Uh, so this year was really, really rewarding uh, because, as you mentioned, we came up with the A and B formula by year where we showed a regular feature. In fact, we opened with uh, the 75th anniversary screening of This Gun for Hire. And then we programmed a B film, a shorter film, And uh, for those listeners uh, not familiar with B, this was in the era of double bills when there would be a shorter, much shorter film following the main feature. Uh, And as Ann Savage told me once, Alan, B does not stand for bad. (laughs) And uh, so some of these films were really, really terrific uh, because due to the relationships that have been forged with the studios by the Film Noir Foundation and Eddie, myself, and, uh, of course, Gwen DeGleese, the ace programmer uh, at the American Cinematheque, who's been there from the very beginning, we've been able to get access to a number of obscure films that are not on DVD and, and really have not been seen. So the neat thing about this festival which, by the way, raised the attendance level significantly from last year uh, with, with very little uh, media publicity in Los Angeles, uh, I'd like to say, is that uh, many of these films hadn't been seen. And the L.A. audience, is a, you're talking about a very, very uh, cinephile-centric hip audience. So uh, I think these unknown, these discoveries really draw our audience in, and they've been fantastic. Uh, several of the ones uh, that I thought were great were uh, one of them that uh, I came up with, Address Unknown, which is a 1944 uh, short film, but it was directed and produced by the great William Cameron Menzies. And on its face, it's a war film, but it's much, much darker than that. It has to do with two families in the United States who immigrated from Europe in the 30s, one 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 Jewish, one not Jewish, and then uh, one family goes back to Germany as Hitler comes to power, and uh, it all goes downhill from there. But it's, it's just a stunning, beautifully crafted film. I, uh, uh, one yeah, of the I, other, I have I have seen that I, one um, last year at the AFI Silver Theater, which shows the Noir City DC Festival each fall. They did a William Cameron Menzies right. series. And they showed Address mm-hmm. Unknown, and I went and saw it, and I had never heard of it before, and I didn't know anything, and I, I agree, it was very, very powerful, great film. With it's Paul, it's Paul a powerful Lukash. film. Uh, yeah. uh, another one we showed uh, after This Gun for Hire on opening night was Quiet, Please, Murder, 
with George Sanders as a uh, rare book thief forger, uh, and the action takes place on a library set during World War II in a library. And it's extraordinary because the script allows Sanders to go off on these Freudian early Addison DeWitt riffs about wanting to punish himself for being a thief and so forth. And it was just an extraordinary discovery. And also, I have to give kudos to the studios that support uh, the Noir City festivals, and in particular, Noir City Hollywood. Uh, Universal has been extremely supportive. They made a new DCP of the 1940, I believe it's 47 or 48 film, Calcutta, with Alan Ladd, William Bendix, and Gail Russell. It was absolutely gorgeous. And that film hasn't been seen intact anywhere except for, you know, grainy versions on YouTube. Uh, they also had a new print of Chicago Deadline, again with Alan Ladd. Uh, a new print of the feature I Was a Shoplifter with Scott Brady and Mona Freeman, which looked like it had only been through a studio projector. It was brand new. And a new print of the Joe Pevney uh, boxing film Iron Man with Jeff Chandler, Evelyn Keyes, and a young Rock Hudson. So all of these films, uh, many of which hadn't hit the big screen for a very, very long time in their original glory, were part of Noir City Hollywood, and it was just really, really a fantastic uh, festival. That's great. And with the B-movies, the a common theme with some of them, at least, is that some of the titles really jump out at you, like Quiet Please Murder, and I Was a Shoplifter. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> What, what's more noir than that? You know, I was a shoplifter uh, behind green lights. I had a lot of people ask me, what's that mean? What's the deeper meaning? Uh, as, as people, you know, really like to drill down and get into the inner meaning of some of these films. And, uh, you know, on that one, I, I think it has something to do with the police department or something at night because it, it shows what happens to a police precinct and a police lieutenant uh, played by William Gargan under scrutiny when there's a political uh, corrupt situation and a murder and bodies being moved around and so forth. And a lot of these B films, because of budgetary and time limitations, they had to really dress up the plot and get innovative with it because, as uh, someone once said, um, uh, action is expensive. <laughs> so there's there's not a lot of uh, window dressing. You have some standing sets, you have the actors, and, and that's pretty much about it. So a lot of these films are really a tribute to the screenwriters of those eras because some of the stories, and, and particularly Quiet, Please, Murder, and Behind Green Lights, are uh, really, really innovative and entertaining. We, and with the, the titles for some of those and how they sold the B-movies, my understanding, I would assume, is they would try a little bit more for some really catchy titles for the B-films because they didn't oh, have, they didn't have the big stars to sell. They weren't going to have big budgets behind them to get people to come. Absolutely. Uh, in, in doing research uh, on my Michael Curtiz biography, one of the things that never failed to surprise me is the amount of back and forth uh, between the elite at Warner Brothers, like Curtiz, Hal Wallace, Jerry Wald, and Jack Warner, who had the ultimate decision over what was the title, what was the title going to be of the film? And usually the studio heads 
and particularly Warner, reserve that right zealously to come up with a title. But the people who made these movies really understood and really believed that the, the catchier the title, the better the business would be for the film. So I definitely think you're onto something there. Right. And one um, little anecdote I just remembered, uh, an interview with Jack Lemmon, he talked about one of his earliest movies was a comedy called Pfft, which was not a particularly good title, like PH followed no, by a bunch no. of Fs. And he no. said at one point no. they... Uh, like shut down production for the afternoon and then someone came back and told them oh, well what was that all about and someone said they had a conference on the title and they decided to remove one of the f's <laughs> from the title <laughs> that 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 sounds like vintage hollywood um you know one of the, one of the titles that hal wallace wanted to change was the 1941 version of the maltese falcon the version one of the classic films of all time, he wanted to change that to The Gent from Frisco. <laughs> and Jack Warner said, we've already previewed it, leave it alone. Oh. And that was that. And that was how the Maltese Falcon stayed, the Maltese Falcon, instead of The Gent from Frisco. Well, so go figure. Thank goodness for that. And uh, I guess another yes. another noir one was um, uh, Murder, My Sweet, one of the big uh, noirs from during the war the first um, time that Philip Marlowe appeared on screen in character with Dick Powell playing him. So that was based on the book yeah, Fare well, they, Farewell, My Lovely yeah, by Raymond Chandler. And then they yeah, changed they it. They thought Farewell, My Lovely would sound like a Dick Powell musical as he was making the transition from a screen hoofer to a hard-boiled private eye. So uh, they thought Farewell, My Lovely was something that he might have co-starred with a decade earlier with Ruby Keeler. <laughs> so that was out. <laughs> yeah, and they, they thought audiences might be confused, right? Like if they showed up saying, oh, Dick Powell, farewell, my lovely, great. And whoa, wait a minute, this wasn't what we were expecting at all. So Correct. if they put murder in the title, it would uh, remove any <laughs> remove any doubts about what right. it was about. Okay, anything else you want to add about uh, North City Hollywood? Or should um, we go on Palm Springs? Just to emphasize this, the, the A and B formula that we came up with and, and the cross-programming that Eddie and I do and Gwen actually, Gwen DeGleese is the one that actually goes out and gets the films, and she's really the hero of Noir City Hollywood and has been so for many years. But um, it, it's really fun to program these films. And, of course, you don't always get the films that you want, particularly where we had a very narrow band when you're looking for a B film for a certain year. And a lot of times the films aren't available. Um uh, we, we opted for a film called Backlash, which I don't think it's been through a projector on a movie screen probably six months after it was released. You're a very, very low-budget film uh, where the cast, uh, including Robert Shane, who played the Inspector Henderson in Superman, uh, you, you could have cast an episode of Superman with a lot of the actors there. Um, and when we showed the film, when it went up on the screen... The soundtrack was there, whatever, but you just had the background. The titles were missing. And uh, subsequently, we discovered that this was a titleless print that was made to send overseas to uh, either France or Italy, where they would put their own language titles on there. And it never went over there, and this print sat in the vault. So you're sitting there, and you're wondering, what the heck is going on? The music's playing, and there's no titles. And then the whole movie played. 
so uh, th- that required a little bit of explanation to the audience after the film, which is a very worthy film, and they enjoyed very much. But these are the types of things that can happen when you, you know, forage down in the vaults, if you will, to come up with films that haven't been uh, seen in many, many years. And it's it's always surprising and and almost always delightful. Eddie said last month that some of these B-movies that you, uh, you guys with the Film Noir Foundation had been trying to find for at least a couple of years, right? Or had been in communication over a long period of time with the studios to try to dig up those titles. Absolutely. Uh, one of the one of the lessons that I've learned for doing this over uh, uh, years is that um, it's that old axiom, never complain, never, never explain. So you at you try to request a film from one of the studios and if it's not available they don't have it or whatever the rationale is you always leave that one there and you return to it the next year and you keep returning it returning to it returning to it and i remember vividly our um when we funded a new print of the movie loophole with uh, Charles McGraw, Barry Sullivan, and Dorothy Malone some years ago, and the Film Noir Foundation uh, funded that, that took several years of asking, do you have it? Yes, you have it, but there's a reel over in England, and oh, we just discovered the reel has uh, Italian or Croatian subtitles, and you have to go back. So this whole business, a lot of time, of locating these films or striking a new print or doing a full restoration as the film noir foundation does it's not necessarily a process that lends itself to brevity it can be very very long very complex and and i'm sure eddie got into this very tangled with with rights issues and legal issues having to do with who owns the film and the rights of the perhaps the screenwriter or the producer or the composer of the music and so forth so it is, it is a very, very, it can be a very, very complex uh, issue or process, rather. And uh, one has to be, you know, patient and determined and keep going back and pursuing something over a number of years. And that's exactly what we've done. And I think uh, the proof is in the pudding because a lot of these films are now, we're able to screen them at, at our Noir City festivals or in many cases, strike new prints, preserve them, and so forth. So it's, uh, I, I feel good that it's quite an accomplishment, and it's one that, that has been made over you know, a decade or more. The difficult titles to come up with are always worth seeing at these festivals, seeing something that hasn't mm-hmm. been shown for a long time. And the rights issues right. that you mentioned, a lot of times that spills over into another complex thing with home video rights to show it on DVD, to get it on DVD or Blu-ray that doesn't oh, yeah. necessarily it's, tie it's, in uh, with who had the film rights. Well, this is, this is why there's so many lawyers in Hollywood. I mean, <laughs> this, the, 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 the things that you have to go through from a legal perspective and copyright, copyright can be, uh, continues down to the survivors or the people that have the estate of the individual writer, filmmaker, whatever, and in, in a lot of cases, sometimes the studios, uh, if the film is fictively obscure, it, are reluctant to renew these rights because they figure the game isn't worth the candle. In other words, the money that they may pay in renewing the rights or if someone pops up with their handout saying, 
you know, I'm the nep- surviving nephew and I'm in charge of this person's estate. So what happens in those cases is the film just gets buried and they can't exhibit it because the, they no longer have the rights, but they're not going to renew the rights because they figure it's going to, you're going to lose money going through that process. So it's, it's a very, it's a very complex situation a lot of times with these old films. And, you know, all you have to look at is uh, what's been going on for decades with The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' last film, which is an extreme case, but it's very illustrative of the complexities that can enter uh, the world of just, uh, it's not just a matter of finding a print and showing it in a theater or putting it out on Blu-ray. The Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival has been held every year in Palm Springs since 2000. It's presented by the Palm Springs Cultural Center, so it's not actually part of the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City Festival series, although several of the FNF's directors have been involved with the festival for many years, including Alan Rohde as the producer and host, along with Eddie Muller and Foster Hirsch introducing movies and interviewing guests. Many of those guest interviews from over the years are available to watch on video at filmnoirfoundation.org, and we'll be discussing some of those a bit later. This year's festival will take place from May 11th to 14th. But before we get to this year, let's start from the very beginning. Alan, can you fill us in on who Arthur Lyons was and how his festival first got started? Uh, Arthur Lyons was a uh, mystery writer uh, and, a, and a dear friend of mine who uh, was born in Hollywood. His father owned a restaurant on the Sunset Strip. And then uh, early on, uh, the family moved to Palm Springs, where Arthur spent his formative years, grew up there. His father uh, uh, and uncle had a restaurant, uh, the Lions uh, restaurant there, which was a a stop for all of the celebrities and so forth. So Arthur grew up there. Arthur became a mystery writer uh, who, sadly, uh, Arthur's writing and his creation of the character Jacob Ash, uh, who is kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, the Jewish Philip Marlowe. Uh, Arthur was a terrific, terrific writer. So he, he started this festival back in 2000, and I got friendly with him, and I came on board, I believe, 2002, 2003, and started co-programming with him, getting the guests. Uh, Eddie was a part of this then. He invited Eddie there, and uh, the the festival has always had the tradition of showing uh, obscure gems uh, of varying quality as far as the prints go, and also guest stars. And, I mean, some of the guest stars in those early years included people like Tony Curtis, Jane Russell. Um, I mean, I got to spend uh, a lot of time several on several occasions with Mickey Spillane and got to know Mickey very well. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, spending time with him was just a revelation. Um, he, he was just a fantastic character and a wonderful actor. Uh, Beverly Garland, uh, standing in the parking lot with her doing her, she was doing an impression of Neville Brand, 
uh, a drunk Neville Brand after we showed DOA, uh, and and it's it was just a wonderful experience. And after Arthur uh, very sadly passed away in 2008, the Supple family, who really are the Palm, founded the Palm Springs Cultural Center and own the Camelot Theaters, asked me to continue the festival. We renamed it after Art uh, in his memory. And so this is my 10th year at the helm, both producing and hosting the festival, uh, programming the films, getting the guests, and so on and so forth. Uh, and it's just been, it's been a absolute delight. The festival now has uh, grown or evolved into an international destination. The attendance has spiked way up. And I have fans coming from Australia every year, Canada, uh, all over the place, as well as Palm Springs, the Coachella Valley, Los Angeles, and Southern California. So it's it's really become a part of the bedrock of uh, an event in Southern California that's very, very unique. And um, some of the guests in the last uh, eight years that, that I've been privileged to invite and spend time with uh, one of the most memorable was Ernest Borgnine, uh, who I had for Pay or Die. And uh, you talk about a down-to-earth person. Uh, uh, Ernie was kind of a guy you'd have a shot and a beer with. He was instantly your friend. And we had a memorable luncheon that I wished uh, I could have videotaped with Ernie and myself and uh, Judy, Julie Garfield and a bunch of other people sitting around trading stories for like five hours and uh most of this was off the record <laughs> and in and in some cases that was good uh, uh like <laughs> you know but it was it was just wonderful and of course Borgnine was wonderful that night we showed uh, a movie he made in 1960 called pay or die where he played a um a joseph petrosino a real life uh early 20th century police detective in New York's Little Italy who fought the Black Hand. And then Borgnine revealed that his father uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, was an immigrant barber and his father got Black Hand notes. And uh, so, I mean, these type of things you have to treasure. Um, I've had Norman Lloyd out there twice uh, for Saboteur and Joe Losey's M, 1951. And Norman is like the griot of old Hollywood. There's nobody else who worked with Charlie Chaplin and Alfred Hitchcock and all of these people uh, and Orson Welles on stage when Orson was in his early 20s before Citizen Kane that can sit there and talk with total recall about all these people and movies and situations. And Norman's a national treasure. And by the way, I just went to a screening uh, yesterday at TCM of the a restoration of the French film Panique uh, from 1947. And guess who was in the audience that went there to watch the film? Norman Lloyd at 102. Still going to movies, still active. Uh, The guy's phenomenal. I was just going to ask, how did you uh, get in touch with some of these folks initially, like with Ernest Borgnine or maybe Norman Lloyd you you had known from before, to talk to them about would you like to come to the festival? I, I, I've lived in L.A. and I've lived in Southern California now for a long, long time. And if you're around long enough and you do this, 
uh, as a profession, you uh, you know you can you can come up with anybody's phone number or contact information if you try hard enough. Some of the uh, people that I've located and brought to these screenings, both at Noir City and Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival, uh, includes like Kim Hamilton, who played Harry Belafonte's ex-wife again, uh, in Odds Against Tomorrow. And I kind of became friends with her, and she lived off the Sunset Strip in a little um, bungalow that Lena Horne used to live in, and before that, Aldous Huxley lived in. And I got to be quite close with Kim, who unfortunately uh, passed away several years ago, but I lured her. She hated doing public uh, performances or anything, was very shy, but I was able to uh, get her out to do that. Uh, and some of these people, just spending time with them, I mean, for me, it's just, uh, it, it's just, it's gold. It's, it's a revelation. Um, some of our more recent guests, uh, Barbara Hale, who just sadly passed on. I had her out, um, I think, two or three years ago to Palm Springs for The Window, which, in fact, she had never seen, unbelievably, because Howard Hughes held on to the film, as was his habit when he was the head of RKO. So by that time, Barbara had left the studio and had never gone to the premiere. So here it is, this classic film that she made in 1947, She's in her 90s seeing it for the first time. And we did an onstage thing, and I couldn't get her off the stage. <laughs> she, even after the show there, she stayed on stage signing autographs, and we had the reception. And she turned to me, and she said, Alan, go get me a glass of wine. <laughs> so being the dutiful host, I did that. Um, more recently, I had Nancy Olson out for Sunset Boulevard. And Nancy, I, I stayed in touch with her. Uh, she's one of the smartest uh, people in the business I've met, and she has lived this extraordinary life, not only of being in one of the most iconic films of all time and being a movie star, but also being married to Alan J. Lerner, who named My Fair Lady after his then-wife, Nancy. Uh, Nancy also ended up her second husband that she stayed married with for the rest of his life. Jay Livingston was the founder of Capitol Records, and so on. Nancy's a fascinating person. And uh, a couple of years ago, I had a great character actor, John Polito from Miller's Crossing. And John tragically passed away last year. But we, John had so much fun with all of the patrons and the people there in Palm Springs that I think he stayed at the, we stayed at the theater till almost one o'clock in the morning and <laughs> kept the theater open with a party because one of the things that makes Palm Springs unique, uh, aside from, you know, no traffic, free parking, everything close, great weather. It's a very, very relaxed vibe where the guest stars relax and mix in with the audience. And it's, it's very, very unique. I don't think you see this in places like Los Angeles or New York City. Uh, and it, it's, it's really a, a great way to, to have the festival, and it's, it's just a lot of fun. And the Camelot Theaters is a terrific venue. Uh, aside from having a big screen and a, and a theater that seats 500 people along with two smaller theaters, uh, our, our festival is always in the big theater. You have a cocktail lounge uh, on the second story and a great restaurant. So 
this is a wonderful place for cinephiles and adults of all ages to enjoy classic film on the big screen while sipping a martini. So what's, as far as film noir goes, what's better than that? So Palm Springs, the general atmosphere there, it's a big retirement community, right, for, for many people from, from Hollywood and from other places. So do you think that plays into part of why um, some of the guests are really comfortable coming there? Because some of them, I assume, either live there full-time or maybe part-time, and that's where they go to relax. So it's that atmosphere well, that makes it easy for them. Yeah, I, I think certainly there's that heritage there, although many of those people uh, have passed on. I mean, I remember showing The City That Never Sleeps, and I was doing a post-screening discussion with the actress Mala Powers. So we're sitting in a little table in the restaurant there at the Camelot Theaters, and she had her original script from 1953, and we were talking what do you want to talk about? You know, don't ask me about Edward Arnold because I didn't, didn't really meet him and I didn't have scenes with him and so forth. And then this old white-haired gentleman comes over to the drinking fountain opposite and I look at him and I tap Mala. I said, isn't that Wally Cassell who was in the movie and who was in the story of G.I. Joe and White Heat and The Guilty and how many other movies? And she said, Wally? And he turned around and looked and I ad-libbed Cody, the place is crawling with cops. And he pointed his finger at me like a gun and laughed. So he joined the conversation. And then um, the producer-director of that particular film was a fellow named John Auer. And all of a sudden, John Auer's wife shows up next to us and says, I'll have you know that that fur that Marie Windsor has on that she gets killed and falls in the gutter in the movie. That was my fur coat. <laughs> I mean, so you can't make all this up. So we had like this mini cast reunion of the city that never sleeps. And that type of thing uh, happens, uh, happened a lot in the past. And you have people that wander in there. Um, I had Patrick McNee show up there and uh, I was standing by the popcorn machine and here comes Mr. McNee with his wife. And I, uh, I kind of resorted to a little fanboy exclamation, and I said, oh, my goodness, it's Steed. He goes, no, no, it's Patrick. <laughs> and he shook my hand, and we talked. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really a lot of fun because, uh, like John Ford said, most of the good stuff in movies happens by accident. Well, sometimes at the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival, a lot of the great moments also happen by accident and it's very serendipitous and it's a lot of fun. A lot of the guests that uh, you've mentioned over the years, there's video of those interviews available at filmnoirfoundation.org. If you click on the video link at the top um, of the page there, and you mentioned, of course, Ernest Borgnine, John Polito, uh, Nancy Olson, many of them. Another one, one of the years that I was able to come to the festival, um, June Lockhart was there with the movie Bury Me Dead. And I just wanted to mention some of the fun anecdotes she had. That's a fun interview to go back and look at. Oh, yeah. Those, those, uh, those videos, uh, I've had Patrick Francis come out and, and film these videos for the last seven or eight years. So uh, all these interviews and the different people that we're discussing here they are on the Film Noir Foundation video link, uh, as you mentioned, and they're also on my own website, www.allenkroady.com. And these, these videos are really timeless because, quite frankly, many of these people have passed on, such as, such as Ernest Borgnine and Barbara Hale. So we're really doing more than just 
showing movies, we're also preserving the history of the stars and the filmmakers uh, of these movies. And I, I think that that's really significant and it's really entertaining. I mean, Norman Lloyd, I think the last time I had him there, we had already covered and talked about Orson Welles and Charlie Chaplin and uh, uh, many of the people that Norman knew. And I said, why don't you tell this very funny story about Charles Lawton? And he said, well, you know, everybody's gone except me. So, yeah, I can tell this story, which is slightly risque. <laughs> and, of course, Norman told it with all of the dramatic uh, uh, pauses and uh, uh, that he brought to it and it just it just brought the house down so yeah so a lot of this is fabulous fabulous and the june lockhart interview that you mentioned i don't think i'll ever forget that one because she had followed ernest borgnine on the next night ernest uh ernie opened the festival with pay or die so we showed bury me dead the following night and june was bound and determined to do just as well as Borgnine, uh, you know, this competitive show business gene is something really awesome to see at work. And we had to walk the stage beforehand and talk about the lighting and ever. And then she had a whole list of questions that she went through that she wanted to say. But a lot of it was fascinating. She talked about how Thomas Edison introduced her parents. Of course, her father was the renowned character actor, Gene Lockhart, who was in so many uh, great movies. Uh, and in, in, including Red Light and the house on 92nd Street and so on and so forth. So um, uh, and she actually got down on her hands and knees and was imitating a vegetable from <laughs> from an episode of Lost in Space. So June pulled out all the stops. It was really memorable. Yeah, she she talked about acting uh, on Lassie. Of course, she was on that for for a number of years. She talked oh, about yeah. how oh, they yeah. would yeah. how they would yeah. act with the dog and how they would get the reaction shots from the dog and and uh, exactly. <laughs> she also mentioned doing was, French homework uh, uh, homework when she was in high school on the set. Her French homework, and she got some help from none other than Charles Boyer. So that was pretty authentic. Yeah, that, that's work. yeah, that that's 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 pretty good. I I remember. In the early years, we had uh, James MacArthur, uh, the son of uh, Charles MacArthur and Helen Hayes, I believe. And he was there, and he was talking about going home and having John Steinbeck review and correct his book report <laughs> before, it was, before he submitted it at school. So, yeah, June, June, was, a, June was a pip. She was fantastic, uh, a great guest. And there's a lot of memorable moments there. And, and this year, uh, we're... We have a we have another lineup of guests. We're going to open with Hollow Triumph, and I'm going to have my good friend, uh, actress, filmmaker Monica Henry there, talk about her father, her father's legacy. She's producing a documentary on her father, Paul Henry, the great actor uh, from Casablanca and now Voyager. Uh, I'm going to be screening um, Black Angel. Uh, with uh, the noir icon Dan Durier and Richard Durier, who has a wonderful career as the road manager for the Beach Boys and Billy Preston and a lot of rock acts and a lot of his own story. will be there to talk about his father. And I'll be showing the neo-noir that I'm very fond of, uh, Charlie Varick and Andy Robinson, who is a great actor who... Uh, Many probably remember as the deranged murderer from Dirty Harry uh, is one of the stars of Charlie Varick, and he will be there to reminisce about that and director Don Siegel and the movie itself. 
And then on Sunday, I'm showing one of my favorite uh, films. It's, I mean, you could you could charitably label it as gothic noir or horror or whatever, but I think it's a great dark film, The Body Snatcher, starring Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, one of the great Val Luton films from RKO of the 1940s. And I'm going to have uh, Boris Karloff's daughter, Sarah Karloff, is going to be the guest at that Sunday afternoon screening at 1 p.m. So this is all taking place on May 11th to 14th. And, of course, uh, Eddie Muller, the czar, will be there. Foster Hirsch will be there helping me with the film introductions and presentations. And we'll have a lot of surprises uh, as far as uh, some DVD giveaways. And also, again, you never know who else is going to turn up there. So I encourage anyone that likes classic film, film noir, a supporter of the Film Noir Foundation, uh, to come out to Palm Springs to the Camelot Theaters on starting on May 11th through the 14th to see the 18th annual Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival. And you also have a couple of uh, sort of rare movies, like we were talking about with Noir City Hollywood. One of them, Address Unknown, that we mentioned, uh, William Cameron Menzies with Paul Lukash. You've got that on the schedule. As well as uh, Meet Danny Wilson with Frank Sinatra, which uh, yeah, I, the music I, we Yeah, I really like that film. It's, uh, no, one, no one remembers that film for some reason. And it's, it's really interesting because it was at the point of Sinatra's career where he was the Bobby Soxer uh, glean had worn off and he hadn't made from here to eternity yet. So his career was kind of on a downward limbo slope at that point. And he made this picture at Universal and he really ended up playing himself, playing a, a singer with a bad temper. Uh, part of it was filmed on the Sunset Strip, uh, Old Wrigley Field, down near Exposition Park. And it really is a noir-stained film because he gets involved with Shelley Winters and then Raymond Burr, as a gangster, tries to muscle his way in and control him. And, uh, you know, of course it's a film noir if it was made in the late 40s, early 50s, and Raymond Burr has a role in it. <laughs> so it's a really, and it was directed by uh, the late, great Joseph Pevney who was another person that lived down in, I believe Joe lived in Palm Desert. And I used to go visit Joe before the festival and spend time with him. And he was just a wonderful, wonderful guy, great director and actor, and many, many stories. But Joe directed this film, Meet Danny Wilson, uh, as a contract director at Universal. And I remember asking him, uh, what was it like uh, directing Frank and Shelley Winters? And Joe said, oy and they. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll have some stories about that film when I introduce it. So, uh, and how could it not be Palm Springs without hearing the dulcet tones of old blue eyes? So I'm really looking forward to that screening. I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, I also programmed All the King's Men, because I think in a year that we just left with the most noir-stained election in perhaps the country's history, that it was appropriate uh, that this movie, which I think is definitely noir, uh, based on the based on Robert Penn Warren's best-selling Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, that it was time to bring this to the fore. 
And I think it's a great film and very, very meaningful uh, in the present day situation we're in. So I'm, I'm also looking forward to that and hope that the audience will enjoy that as well. Yes, that's a great one. And that was a major success at the time that won the Oscar. Best oh, picture. It won the Oscar 49. for Best yeah. Picture. Broderick Crawford won the Best Actor right. Award. Mercedes McCambridge won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, and John Ireland, who really is the spine of the film, with who provides the voiceover and narration of the whole story and so forth, he was nominated uh, for an Academy Award. Uh, but as we all know, uh, awards at that level are very politicized. And uh, Recently, John Ireland Jr. Uh, came to um, one of the screenings at North City Hollywood, and a delightful guy, screenwriter, and a soundman in Hollywood with his own distinguished career resume. Uh, but I talked with um, I talked with John, and he told me some interesting things about his father, that movie, and particularly working with Howard Hawks at Red River. So hopefully. Uh, John will show up at this screening. I invited him to it, uh, he and his wife. So that, that may be an added treat for the All the King's Men screening on May 12th at Palm Springs. Sister, I've known some pretty hard cases in my time. You make them all look like putty. But you're talking about a dame's life. You may think it's funny for a woman with a kid to stop a bullet for you, but I'm not laughing. Really? Well, I don't care. She's got twins. You talk like you'd rather I got the bullet. Who's out of you on, anyhow? Listen, Jingle Jaw, nothing's happened to you yet, has it? No, and it better not. Well, then shut up! So we wanted to talk also about the uh, books that you've written, Alan, one from previous years and one that's coming out soon. So one that you wrote some years okay. back is Charles McGraw, Film Noir Tough Guy, all about the life of the actor Charles McGraw, who was the star of The Narrow Margin and uh, a number of other great noir films. He was one of the killers with William Conrad in the great uh, Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner film. And in connection with that, so if you want to talk some about that book, but I also wanted to mention that on your website, on alankrody.com, you have um, you had a post up that we'll link to in the podcast notes on your extensive family history that overlapped a lot with uh, that was tied with Hollywood and with the movie business and how there were some links with that essentially with people kind of like Charles McGraw who were in the business. Yeah, that's true. I guess I do have the Hollywood character actor DNA <laughs> in that. <laughs> And uh, you mentioned that blog post about my uh, maternal grandfather, whose name was Alphonse Corelli, who worked with Shirley Temple in the educational picture shorts, was a, a composer, musician at Universal Studios, and an actor in silent films, and was a mood, mood musician on the set of silent films. And uh, I, I wrote that mostly for my daughter and my grandchildren, who... Uh, you know, I grew up around all these people, and now, you know, as, as time has marched on, all these people, including my parents, are both gone now. So I, I wanted to leave something where I could still remember a lot of this stuff, because uh, my, my older brother, David, and I are really the last two people who remembered a lot of these people, a lot of these stories. So I kind of wrote that out of, out of a sense of, you know, putting something out there about how I grew up. But it's very true that a lot of these people that uh, my mother grew up with, uh, different character actors. I mean, I found out late in life that the the actor that plays the head waiter in In a Lonely Place, a, a actor by the name of Arno Fry, gave my mother away at both of her weddings. 
<laughs> including the one to my father in 1946. So I did have that. I did have that uh, DNA, and and grew up, you know, watching movies on television and writing them down in a three ring binder, uh, uh, similar to the late great Robert Osborne did. And and my brother and I grew up doing stuff like that. Uh, so uh, at any rate, uh, the Charles McGraw book was very serendipitous experience, and I think this goes back now ten or twelve years when I wrote this book because. I was always fascinated with McGraw, the, the granite jaw, the voice, the, the way that he could uh, uh, play any number of parts like uh, uh, cruel torpedoes and placable cops. And I, I really was taken with him from the moment I saw him in, as the gladiator trainer Marcellus and Spartacus and, you know, no talking in the kitchen slave. And uh, from that, I, I ended up taking that uh, at a certain point and tracking down uh, and finding out about his death, which was very tragic and somewhat mysterious. And from that, I got to know his last significant other who lived in the same house that McGraw had passed away in. And one thing led to another. So I ended up becoming friendly with uh, a woman named Millie Black, who spent uh, the last 15 years of McGraw's life with him, uh, meeting McGraw's daughter and his friends who were uh, fellow actors and stuntmen in the Studio City area, like um, Bobby Hoy, who became a dear, dear friend of mine, and and writing that book. So that was that was really an experiment in serendipity, and, and I'm, I'm kind of pleased and abashed to note that that book is still in print, <laughs> And, and people still buy it, which is very, very rewarding. The the perspective, I think, that makes that book really interesting, and I think that's the link with your history over your whole life of knowing people in the Hollywood business, is it's from the perspective of an actor who, who was very successful and had a number of leading roles and had a, a very successful mm -hmm. career, but he was not a major A-list above the title superstar. So those people don't tend to have books written about them. So we don't have a whole lot of sources for perspective on what Hollywood was like back then from the eyes of someone who was in the business and was successful and had a, a good living out of it, but was not a major mega superstar. Well, that's true. And, and at one point they tried to elevate McGraw in the late 1940s, early 50s as RKO, and they were going to try to elevate him into stardom. I think that didn't work, and he basically took on first, second leads, and then character parts. Part of that was the nature of what he looked like and what he sounded like, particularly that voice that was like, you know, broken glass being moved around in a crocus sack or something. And I remember his daughter saying to me at one point, she said something about something sarcastic or derogatory about his voice. And he said, you know, if it wasn't for my voice, we wouldn't have this house on Studio City in a hill with a big swimming pool in the backyard. So don't complain about it. Uh, part of it was that part of it was the change of the studio system when McGraw got signed to a contract at RKO in 1950 the studio system between the divestiture, antitrust divestiture decree from the government, which forced RKO and the other major studios to divest themselves in their theaters, and then particularly the advent of television and the explosion of television, which stopped people from, uh, you know, 
people would rather stay home and be entertained rather than go out to the movies. So uh, his timing uh, wasn't exactly terrific in that aspect. And then the third thing was, uh, and and for people like yourself who've read the book and are familiar uh, with McGraw's life, that he had a significant drinking problem, uh, uh, alcohol problem that got worse and worse uh, over the years as people who people who are alcoholics uh, experience that, and so there is a certain gene of self destructiveness in Charlie Charlie McGraw uh, that also. Uh, kind of truncated his career and didn't let him elevate himself into the ranks of a leading man. So I think overall it's a good story uh, about a life, about, about someone that maintained their grip on themselves despite a lot of problems and insecurities. And also I tried to portray it uh, against the backdrop of a changing Hollywood, uh, which was the era that McGraw uh, did most of his best work in. There's a number of great films that he did, which are, uh, some are a little better known to noir fans than others, but uh, a lot of them that you covered in the book as well, which are not major titles that people had seen a lot over the years, but which are terrific and are well worth going back and revisiting. Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, a movie like The Threat uh, that was made by RKO in 1949, and it was a programmer, and it starred McGraw as kind of the, uh, the B version of Cody Jarrett. Uh, played by James Cagney in White Heat, and uh, this was this is really a stunning film. And I remember that uh, when Eddie screened this over in France several years ago, it got uh, a bunch of critical notice because it's a powerful film, and people really didn't know about that. Really didn't know that that McGraw had played this role, uh, even though it kind of typed him as as you know the hatchet voice. Uh, bad guy in so many films and and a film like roadblock where he played this uh, tragically conflicted um, insurance investigator who uh, who compromises himself and gets involved in a robbery for the love of a woman it's kind of the classic it's the classic noir dilemma and uh, but his work in both of these pictures is exemplary yet uh, at the time before this book was written and before uh, the Film Noir Foundation brought these two pictures to the fore, very few people knew about these movies or had seen them. And now, of course, they've been popularized not only by writing about them, but by uh, our friends and sponsors at the Warner Archive Collection, putting them out on DVD and so on and so forth. So uh, it's, uh, it's really good that in writing about Charles McGraw, a lot of these movies that had kind of fallen between the cracks are now available for everyone to enjoy and reflect upon. And then you have another book coming out later this year, which is Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film. And we're going to have you back on later in the year to talk about that in detail. Uh, so for now, why don't you give us the, the basics of uh, how you got started working on this book and what we can expect? Uh well, the Michael Curtiz thing, I could have titled it My Life Working on Michael Curtiz <laughs> because it's taken me, I think, seven years for this book to be published. It's going to be published by the University Press of Kentucky in November of 2017, this year. 
And uh, it, it has been a long, long journey. It's a very, very big book. Um, I think it's going to come in at about 600 pages, and I really couldn't write it any other way because Curtiz was just incredibly, uh, incredibly prolific director. He had a incandescent mania to direct films, and that was that was his life, and that came before everything, even nourishment, as, as I write about in the book. And it's been quite an odyssey. Uh, I was I was essentially asked to write about him. Uh, after talking with uh, the, the great biographer Patrick McGilligan, who is the series editor for a number of these types of books at the University Press of Kentucky. And also I had my good friend and actor Richard Erdman, who still remains a friend to this day. And Dick was actually discovered and put on his first film by Michael Curtiz uh, after he graduated from Hollywood High School in 1944. And he revered Curtiz and said, you know, you need to write a book about Mike. And after looking around and discovering no one had really written a biography of Curtiz to that point, uh, I plunged in and did it. And I had no idea uh, what a journey I was embarking on. It took me to Budapest, where I did research because very few people realized that Curtiz was an actor and directed upwards of 70 films in Europe before he even came to America, to Warner Brothers in 1926. So it's been a long journey, uh, and, and as, a, as a completist, when it comes to films and the things that I do, it's a long book, but I think it's one that will be uh, well-received and well-remembered, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it in more detail. Very much looking forward to that. And on that note, we will wrap things up for this episode. So, Alan, thanks very much for joining us. Haggai, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And you have been a stalwart noir supporter, supporter of the Film Noir Foundation, and a great cinephile and friend for many, many years. So this was really a, a pleasure and a privilege. Thanks for having me on. Thanks very much, Alan. Thanks again to Alan K. Rohde for joining us. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up for their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back with another episode next month. And until then, thanks for joining us here on Noir Talk.